can turn to Genesis chapter 16, and uh, we'll be covering the whole chapter today, and the title of our lesson is Family Problems, Family Problems. We're actually going to break this up into two sections. The first uh, section is verses 1 through 6, and we'll we'll title this, When a Woman Wears the Pants. when a woman wears the pants, I figured I'd be a little provocative, uh, take a chance this morning. So we'll kind of handle verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at uh, 7 through 16. Uh, 16. 16. Yeah. There are uh, few things, uh, in, in my estimation, you know, I've, I'm 55 years old now and got a little bit of experience. I can tell you, in life, a lot of things that you... Uh, that you think are great when you're young, uh, as, you, as you get older, they don't mean near as much. And, and one thing that I've found in my life that I think made, has, made, uh, has made just life great for me, and one thing I always go back to, is a harmonious marriage. I, I've, I've got a very harmonious marriage. Um, not that Kathy and I don't have disagreements, but um, my, my house is a house of peace. There's not no drama there. It's a place you can go home to. You know what you're going to get. You know what to expect. I don't think there's anything better than, than that uh, in life that can make life good. At the same time, there's probably nothing worse and nothing stressful than a home that is filled with strife. Uh, I just think that's, I, I just don't know how people can deal with that. Uh, Solomon said this in Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in a big house with a contentious woman. Now, the same thing, though, can be said to live in a house with a contentious man, right? It's, it's, you know, Solomon was a man. He was writing, and I don't know how we call him the wisest man in the world. He had 700 wives, 300 mistresses. That don't make any sense to me. That's not a lot of wisdom there. But he understood that a household that's filled with strife, no matter how big it is, how great it is, you might as well go, you're better to go live on the corner of the rooftop. Because a home filled with strife is a, is a stressful, stressful life. Now, if we're honest, no, no home is perfect. Um, when you take selfish men and selfish women, sinful men and sinful women, and you put them in close proximity with one another, day after day, night after night, hour after hour, conflict is, is absolutely inevitable. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. You'll remember when we all, way back a few months ago when we covered Genesis chapter 3. And, and God pronounced, after, the, uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and God is pronouncing his curse, he says this to Eve. He says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. And, and even back then, what we pointed out is this is the, is the exact same language that God uses with Cain in chapter 4. After Cain is angry that his sacrifice has been rejected, God comes to Cain and he says this, If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is at your door. Excuse me, sin is at your door and its desire is for you. And But you should rule over it. So God says, Cain, sin's desire is for you. And then he tells Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. That's the exact same language. See, what he's saying is this. The woman was created to be a helper and a support to her husband. That is her purpose. Emotionally, she is designed for that, right? That is the purpose she was designed for. But now, 
she is cursed with an inclination to dominate him. In other words, can you imagine we said it back then, anything worse, you're created for a particular purpose, but then your purpose is thwarted. Right? Can you imagine the frustration for that? I'm designed for one thing, but yet my very nature tends to push me the other way. Say, and the same thing, by the way, for the man who is, Adam says, this is flesh of my flesh. The man is created to treat a woman like his own flesh, to love her, to respect her, to honor her, to protect her, to, to nourish her. But yet now he's inclined to rule over her, to dominate her. Neither one of those is God's original design, but it is our natural state in this world. Everybody with me? When you, because of our fallenness, because of our sinfulness, that is our natural state to dominate and to rule uh, one another. Let me say this, by the way. I, 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 when I say our natural state, uh, several months ago I was scrolling through some articles and I ran, I ran across an article and it said monogamy is not natural. And it was written by a Christian author. And it said monogamy is not natural. And I thought, well, that, why is he writing that? So I went to the article and read, and of course his title was just trying to get your attention. His whole point was monogamy is not natural, it's supernatural. Right? See, that's the thing. We have a natural state, but as Christians we should have a supernatural state. We have a natural state that we walk in in our flesh, but the Holy Spirit puts, empowers something in us that's supernatural. We don't have to follow the curse of Adam and Eve. We can do it right. We can do it the way that God has designed it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, because of this, and because of this natural state, right, because the flesh, uh, Paul says, I think, in, in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. We've got this battle. And because of this, even the best of Christian husbands and Christian wives are going to have misunderstandings. We're going to have disagreements. But a home that submits itself to God's plan for that home and for the marriage and for the family can be an absolutely wonderful place. Now, the question this morning for each one of us is, how is your home? You know, I can only answer that for myself. I can't answer that for you. How is your home? Are you living according to the ideals of Scripture and the ideals of God's plan for the family and for the marriage? Or does your home fall Short. Well, let me tell you, if your home falls short, then let me tell you, you can take heart because even Abraham's home <laughs> fell short. He's the father of the faith. He's one of the, the great men that's ever lived, and yet he had his own struggles and his own problems in his family. He and his wife, Sarai, they were not perfect. They made mistakes, and, and those mistakes resulted in a lot of strife in their family, as we'll see in today's passage. And one of the things we're going to point out this morning in verses 1 through 6, and one of the mistakes they made is they followed cultural norms and cultural standards rather than God's plan. Now this, listen, I, I, I say this all the time. If, if, if you, the Bible, when you really read it and study it, and you understand they were just like us. They had the same pressures, the same fears, that they, they made the same mistakes that we make. And what they did is they adhered to cultural norms and standards instead of God's plan. Now, listen, in every culture, in their culture and our culture, there's going to be things in our culture that are damaging to family life. There are going to be things that are favorable to family life, and there are going to be things 
that are neutral. As God's people, we have to always think biblically about our culture. Just because the culture says it's okay doesn't make it okay. Just because everybody is doing it doesn't make it right. Okay? Just because it's just, just because, you know, you see it all around you doesn't mean it lines up with, with, the, with the Bible. See, we are to resist, we are to think biblically about our culture and resist things that are harmful to our families and to our, our marriages. And so what we want to do in today's lesson is look at the mistakes that Abram and Sarah made and, and learn from those uh, mistakes. Here, I'm going to give you about five or six lessons that we can learn. Number one, a culture always puts pressure on families to violate God's word. A culture will always pressure God, God's people and, our, and God's families to violate his word. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and see what we see here. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Listen, I think we'd all agree that cultural pressure today on families is is far worse than it's probably ever been in history. And the one of the reasons for that is mass media, right? You get pressure from TV. You get it from movies. You get it from books. You get it from your telephone. You get it from social media. It's just we're constantly bombarding us with ideas that are harmful to family structure. I mean, just, you know, anywhere you want to go, you see these kind of messages coming to us. There's nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage. Everybody's doing it, Right? You need to get out of that bad marriage. You and your kids are going to be better off. Right? Put your career first. If you want to get ahead financially, you need to, you need to focus on your career. We, just, we get these messages constantly, constantly. Again, through every TV show, through every movie. You know, uh, you're, you're just seeing it more and more and more, aren't we? Can't watch any, hardly anything without getting bombarded with these, with these messages. It's, it's funny that it's easier in this country to walk away from a marriage than it is from walking away from buying a used car. There's hardly any contract in this, in this country that, that you can void, one person can just walk away from without any reason, without there being consequences, except for, the, for, the, uh, for, for marriage. Anybody can just walk away for no reason and, and they'll just annul it and move on. Like It's just crazy how we've changed things in this country. Now, in Abram and Sarai's day, the cultural pressures were not as pervasive as they are for us, but they were just as powerful. And in their culture, one of the pressures was to have children, especially sons. Okay, that was an extreme pressure. Now, I know it might be hard for us to, 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 to maybe, maybe recognize that or to, uh, you know, to understand that, but in that day and age, having children was incredibly important for them. And there was a cultural pressure that was put on women to have children and especially to produce uh, sons. Sons guaranteed a lot of things. Number one, they guaranteed your family name would be passed down. They guaranteed that you would be taken care of in your old age. They, the more sons you had, uh, they looked at you as more prosperous and more blessed. 
And for uh, to be childless in that culture was a reproach. It was a stigma that a woman had to carry with her. And, and in other words, people looked at you like something was wrong with you. Not just physically, but something was wrong with you spiritually. God was cursing you. You, you were not blessed. You were not prosperous. There was, there was something defective about you. And so it was a stigma that a woman had to carry with her for her entire life. Now, in Abram's case, the pressure to have children on them was magnified by a couple of things. Number one was his name. The, the name Abram means exalted father. Can you, uh, can you imagine a visitor stops by the house and, and shakes his hand and says, Hey, I'm, I'm uh, you know, so-and-so, what's your name? And he says, Oh, I'm Abram. And the guy says, Really? How many children you got? Uh, <clears throat> none. You know, I mean, exalted father and you got no kids? I mean, that's, that's embarrassing, right? He's, he, he wants to have children. The second factor, of course, was their ages. At this, Abram was 75. If you go back to Genesis 12, he was 75 years old when he left Haran after his father died. Ten years have passed. He's been in uh, uh, Canaan now for ten years. He is now 85. Sarai is 75. Listen, they've been trying to have children for years. It is obvious that they are infertile. Okay? This is not just a, a short time frame that's gone by. They've been married many, many, many years and they don't have any children. So the pressure on them to have a son or at least a child is, is intense. So Sarai comes up with a plan. Now, in that day, if a wife could not produce children, it was culturally acceptable. In fact, it was the cultural, the, the cultural norm that she could take one of her servant girls, give it to her husband, and then he could go in and have relations with her, and any child that that, that that union produced would become the child of the wife. Okay, That was the way it was done. Today, we would uh, somebody might say, well, I'll go the route of sur- surrogacy, or I'll go the, uh, 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 the route of in vitro fertilization. We've got our own cultural norms, do we not? We've got ways around it today. Well, they had come up with ways around it back then. Nothing's changed. Technology has changed. Science has changed. But human beings always find a way to get around things. And in that day, they had a culturally acceptable way to get around the fact that a a couple could not have uh, children. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Hagar is a... It says she's an Egyptian servant or Egyptian female servant. You remember when Abram went down to Egypt and he lied and he said Sarah was his wife? Y'all remember that? And the Pharaoh, when he took her into his, uh, into his house, he gave Abram a dowry. He gave him goats and camels and sheep and male servants and female servants. So Hagar is probably one of the female servants that he picked up while he was in, um, while he was in Egypt. So the lie that he told a few years ago is about to come back and haunt him a little bit more. There's always consequences, right? And, and, and now it's just going to come back in a different form. So Sarah comes up, Sarai comes up with this idea, and Abraham listens to her voice, and he does what she asks. He, he gives in to this culturally acceptable norm. He goes into Hagar. She gets pregnant, and, and she's going to have a child. Now, lesson number two. We are most influenced by those we are closest to emotionally. Okay? 
We are most influenced by those that we are the most emotionally close to. See, listen, my guess is if one of Abram's friends had come to him and said, Abram, I got an idea. Why don't you just go into one of your servant girls? Let me tell you, let me tell you something about Abram. He loved Sarai. He loved her. We don't never see him. Uh, he's not got a bunch of concubines and a bunch of other women. She was a beautiful woman. And, and even when she, I mean, you just see, he, you can tell he loved her. I can't imagine that he would have brought that to her as a suggestion. Hey, I'll just go sleep with this other woman and have her baby and it'll become, become yours. But because he loves her and he wants to please her and he wants her to be happy, because it comes from her, he's vulnerable. Everybody with me? If it had been some friend, he would have probably just blew it off and said, man, ain't no way I'm doing that. But because it comes from her, he listens because he wants to make her happy. By the way, Adam did the same thing, didn't he? Eve comes and says, hey, why, why don't you eat this with me? And, 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 and we're, we're vulnerable to those that we're close to emotionally. So we need to be on our guard against that. As men and women, be, be careful that we're not influenced um, in the wrong way by those we're emotionally close to. Also, on the other side of the coin, be careful that you don't influence somebody else the wrong way. That they, you don't make them listen to you just because you're, uh, they're close to you emotionally. Lesson number three, right motives are not enough. We need right methods. Right motives are not enough. You hear people say all the time, well, my heart was in the right place. Let me tell you, both Abram and Sarah had good motives. Their motives were pure. They wanted to help God out by producing this promised heir. Their motives were right but their methods were wrong. You see, in God's Word, let me tell you, methods are just as important as your motives. How you do it is just as important as why you did it. Did, did the result you got come from a dependence on God, or did it come from the flesh? Is God the source of that thing that you did, or is it just fallen human nature? See, I think this is a real problem for us because Americans, we are a very pragmatic people, right? It's just about, let's just get it done. If it works, it must be right. After all, look at the, look at the result. But I want you to notice with Abram and Sarai, they got the result. They got the intended result, as we'll see as we move through the chapter. They got the son. But it wasn't from the Lord. It wasn't the Lord's way of doing it. And in the end, even though they got the result, it created all kind of problems. Not only short-term, but problems that the nation of Israel is still dealing with today, 4,000 years later. See, the motives were pure. The motives were good. But it, it wasn't God's way. And when you don't do it God's way, there are consequences. And, and again, they, they saw the consequences. We'll see them here very quickly, but we're still seeing them even uh, today. Lesson number four, right methods involve seeking the Lord, not using culturally acceptable means to escape our problems. Let me say that again. Right methods involve seeking the Lord and doing it His way, not going around Him and using culturally acceptable methods to escape our problems. You want to, notice what, Lord, uh, what Sarai said, the Lord has what? prevented me. Don't you think that should have set off an alarm bell? If the Lord has prevented you, what, why do you think it's right to make an end run around His will? Are you with me? 
If she said, the Lord has prevented me, I should have set off alarm bells. But it didn't. She said, we'll just go do it another, another way. Lesson number five. Male passivity always leads to family problems. Male passivity in the family always leads to family problems. Look at verses 3 through 4. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. I believe, not only around the world, but I'll just focus here on America, one of the greatest problems in our families is a passive male. And by passive, what I mean is not assuming the responsibility of spiritual leader in the home. That's what I mean. I don't mean he's not earning a living. I don't mean any of that. But I mean men are just out doing all, everything in the world except the thing they should be doing, which is leading their families spiritually. But this is not just an American phenomenon. And it's not just a 21st century phenomenon. It was a problem 4,000 years ago. It's always been a problem. You know, in chapter 15, you hear Abram listening to the Lord, right? You get to chapter 16, now you find him listening to his wife. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear here. The problem is not listening to your wife. That, and, and many times, that's the smartest thing a man can do. The problem is abdicating spiritual leadership. The problem is listening to her and giving in even though you know that's not right. That's not the way we should go. But you don't want to buck her. You don't want to go against her. You, don't, you want to please her. Whatever the reason is, you just let it go. That, that is a huge problem in American families. And this is exactly what Abram did. He was passive when he should have been strong. He was submissive when he should have been a, a leader. And because of this, all kind of problems uh, resulted, just one behind the other. For example, competition immediately occurs between Hagar and Sarai. Listen, there is a reason that God's design for the family is one man and one woman for life. Because as soon as you put a third person into that, you got problems. It just doesn't work. It is impossible to involve a third person in a marriage without having competition and without having family problems and issues. There's a reason God designed it the way that he did. It led to pride on Hagar's part. As soon as she got pregnant, it says she looked with contempt on Sarai. She thought she was, I'm better than her. I'm a more of a woman than she is just because I can have a, a child. So she saw herself as better than Sarai. And, and she probably talked about it and everybody saw it and and Sarai got embarrassed, and it just it led to all these types of issues. It led to conflict in the home. Look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now, this is a, she's already mad with Hagar. She's upset with Hagar. Now she gets, she gets mad with Abram. Okay, see, now he gave in. He did what she wanted, right? That didn't make her happy. See, he should have been a leader. He should have stood up and done the right thing, and he didn't. And now he's got, he's got problems. She's blaming, by the way, you understand she's blaming him for what happened? She's saying, may the wrong be done to me, be on you. In other words, this is all your fault, Abram. You're the one that wants his son so bad. 
You're, you're, you're the one, every, you know, your name is exalted. Father, you, you've put all this pressure on me. I'm just trying to do the right thing. Now look what we've got, what, what, you know, look what you've got me into. May the wrong that's done to me be on you. It's your fault. It leads, it leads to false spirituality on Sarai's part. She, at the end of that statement, she says, May the Lord judge between me and you. In other words, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. This is your fault, Abram. And poor old Abram's just sitting there. What? What? I just did what you wanted. Right? See, you just, you just can't be passive like that and go the wrong route and, you, and there not be consequences. There's always going to be consequences. And to make matters worse... When all of this happens, when, it, when he should have said, you know what, I, we've made a mistake. Let's, let's stand up and be strong and, and right this mistake. When he should have been a leader, he, just even, he gets even more passive. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He just steps even further away. He said, Honey, just, just do whatever you think's right. You, you just take over the situation. You handle it. And see, her stinging rebuke to him just, just, just makes him even go deeper into his shell. Everybody see that? It's your fault, Abram. I, I, you're, you're in the wrong. He just, he just retreats even further into passivity instead of being the leader that he should have uh, been. Which finally, you got all these problems. Now you got even one bigger one. Look at verse 6 again. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her and then she fled. So Sarai, Sarai starts to mistreat her, to, to, to abuse her, whether it's just emotionally or some other way, we don't know. But Hagar eventually uh, has to get up and run and flee. So here's Abram. We don't see him protesting. We don't see him doing any of that stuff. He just gives in to Sarai. She wants a child. She plans it all out. And Abram just does as he was told. Lesson number six. Be careful, be very careful when you're trying to escape pressure. Be very careful when you're trying to escape pressure. You see, both Abram and Sarai feel pressure. They feel pressure from the culture. They feel, feel pressure from their families. They feel pressure to have a son. But pressure should always drive you... Listen, we talk about this a lot, right? Trials and tests and pressure are going to do one of two things. It's going to drive you to God or it's going to drive you away from it. They're always, that's what they're designed for. And, and this kind of pressure should drive you to a greater trust in God, not to try to come up with some culturally acceptable way to get around it. You see, many people today bail out of a marriage because they're unhappy, and they'll say they found peace. Listen, it's not peace they found. What they found was relief. Let me say that again. A lot of people will bail out of a bad situation and say, well, I finally got peace. No, you don't have peace. What you found was relief. There's a big difference between relief and peace. And what you're doing is you're feeling relief from the pressure. But there are long-term consequences to the decision you just made. Everybody with me? Just because you feel relief, don't make it, don't make it peace. As a husband, you can sometimes say to your wife, you know, just whatever you want, sugar. Just, just whatever you want, honey. And you can find relief. Right? But in there, there are consequences of not being the spiritual leader in your home. And that chicken's always going to come home to roost. It's always going to come home to roost. If you've ever wondered, 
If people like, that lived 4,000 years ago are just like us, this passage ought to, ought to answer that for you. They are exactly like us. You got a wife, she pressures her husband into a scheme to alleviate her embarrassment in the eyes of society. He goes along with it, she gets what she wants, but guess what? She ain't happy, right? Then she takes blame, then she blames him for the whole thing, and rather than taking responsibility, he just wimps out. It just sounds like a lot of families. In, in this, I mean, it's, it's exactly like, like, like our families today. Now, one thing you may have noticed, God is strangely absent. Have you all noticed from these verses? Nobody asks God what he thinks that they ought to do. His covenant with Abraham is never mentioned. Faith is never mentioned, doesn't seem to be a factor at all in this story. Nobody, like I said, nobody seeks God's will. Hey, do you, do you want us to do that? And, and more distressing is not only is God not mentioned, God never intervenes. He could have stepped in and said, wait a minute, what you are about to do is going to cause your, going to cause your people problems for 4,000 years. It's almost once they've decided to do what they're going to do, God says, okay, okay, I'm going to let this, I'm going to let this happen. So he, he's not speaking to anybody, but then in verse 7, he finally speaks. And of all people... He, you would think, well, he's going to speak to Abram and he'll speak to Sarai, but he doesn't. Of all people, he speaks to Hagar. Let's look, look at verses 7 through 16 real quickly, and we'll call this a divine intervention. As I said, of the three people that he spoke to, you would never expect this. She's a lowly servant girl. She's been mistreated by her mistress, but yet God cares about her situation. You know, at the end of the day whatever the cultural norms was in that society, she was, she was just used, wasn't she? When you look at that situation, she was just being used. She was just, uh, you know, she, she, they didn't treat her as a real person. She was just treated as a servant girl. Hey, just give her to Abraham, right? But you see, God cares about even her. It's not just the great men and women of faith. He cares about everybody. And he goes out of his way in this chapter to speak to her. Now, we saw in verse 6 that Hagar has run away. Uh, look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Well, if you look at that on a map, that's on the way back to Egypt. So more than likely, she's run away. The only place she knows to go is to try to make it back to, to Egypt. And she finally stops at this spring. Now, she's in a bad way, right? She's, a, she's just a servant girl. She's all alone. Now she's pregnant. She's out in this, in this wilderness. She's in danger from robbers. She's in danger from, from animals. She's, I'm sure she's got few supplies that she took with her. She stops at this spring. She's absolutely exhausted. I mean, this, she's in a bad, bad situation. And look at verse 8. So the angel of the Lord finds her, and he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. We've said this often. Always remember when you read the Bible, when God asks a question, He's not looking for information. God already knows, right? When He asks a question, what He's trying to get you to do is to think. Because He already knows the answer. So He's just trying to get you to think. So He asks her these two questions. Where have you come from? Well, she's come from being Sarai's servant, right? And in that day, she's not free to leave. She has a duty to, to Sarai. That's just the way it was culturally. Where are you going? She don't know. Right? She's left. She's alone. She's got no help. She's got few supplies. 
she, I, I, she don't, she just kind of made this brash decision. She don't really know where she's going. She's not seeking the Lord. She's not looking after his will. She just made this, somebody mistreated her, and she just, she just ran. By the way, those two questions are always good questions to ask ourselves when we're going through a trial. Where did you come from? Is, in other words, is God allowing this trial? Where are you going? Did you seek his permission to get out of it? Are, did, are you running from it? Did you ask him about this? Those are always good questions to ask ourselves. You see, one thing we're going to see with Hagar, our real need in a trial is not to escape, but to submit to the Lord. That is our, that is our overriding real need whenever we go through a test or a trial. So the Lord is going to have some good news and some bad news for Hagar. Okay? And, and by the way, this same good news and bad news applies to us. First, the bad news. Look at what he says in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back to the mistreatment. Go back to the trial. Go back to the test and submit to it. Now, let's be honest. I don't think she wanted to hear that, do you? I'm sure she did not want to hear that. By the way, we don't want to hear it either. But the Lord made us, and He knows us better than we know ourselves. And what He's saying to her and what He would say to us in any trial is your number one need when you're going through this trial is to learn to submit to me. And you don't learn to submit to me by running from the test. Stay where you are, go through it, and learn to trust me. That is your number one need. Don't run from it. Don't try to get out from under it. Go back to it. And we would say to God, but God, you don't understand. Yes, he does. See, he understands there are lessons in this life, and the only way we're going to learn those lessons is going through a trial, going through a test. That's the only way we're going to learn it. There are things inside of us that he wants to get rid of. There's things inside of us he wants to, to bring up and, 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 and get out of our life, and he can only do it through a test or a trial or some kind of, some kind of mistreatment. That, that's the only way. So he says, go back to it. Go back to it and submit to me. You see, some people never grow in the Lord because they spend their entire life running and getting out of trials and temptations. When they're young, they got problems with parents. What do they do? Do they submit? No, they rebel. They get a job that's too tough. Do they submit? No, they quit. They, they get a marriage that's unhappy. So do they, do they stick it out? No, they walk away. They, they go into a church and there's problems in the church. Do they submit to the authority? And, and No, they, they go find another church. Are you with me? They spend their whole life just, just running, running from test and trial. And what God is saying, go back and submit. Go back and submit and learn from me. Trust me. But see, when you leave like that, what all you're doing, by the way, is just carry your baggage with you, right? You got your own issues, your own... See, when, when you were with your parents and y'all weren't getting along, a lot of that was your fault. An unhappy marriage, that's, a lot of that's your fault. A job that doesn't work out, a lot of that's your fault. You just carry it to the next and the next and the next. The problem is they never learn to submit to God in the authority structures He's put in place to grow and mature them. No, they just run. They get out from under it. Nobody's, nobody's going to make me feel this way. Nobody's going to mistreat me this way. Nobody's on and on and on. And we just run and run and run. 
You see, our number one need in a time of trial is to submit to God, to humble ourselves under His hand. See, God is in control of the circumstances, even, by the way, even when we're being treated unfairly, even when we're being maybe uh, misused and mistreated. God is still in control. So He says, stay there, submit to that, uh, that circumstance, and learn from me. Now, here's the good news. When we do that, blessings follow. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, the first thing he said is, go back and submit to your mistress. Go back to the mistreatment. Go back to the trial. Go back and, and submit to that. When you do, look at verse 10. The Lord, angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. What a statement. Truly in this, in this test, truly in this affliction, truly in this, this place where nobody would want to be, truly it's here that I have seen the one who looks after me. What, what a statement that is. Therefore the well was called Bir Laharoi, the well, which means in, in Hebrew, the well of the living one who sees me. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You see, there's an application here in this chapter for all of us, and that is God allows U-turns. That's good news, isn't it? God allows U-turns. Even though we've been runners in our life, even though we've run from tests, we've run from mistreatment, we've run from those types of things, God allows U-turns. He allows us to turn around and submit to Him in that trial, and blessings will be on us and on our descendants. You see, I think we've got this... I think all of us, we talk about this sometimes, we've all got kind of this natural inclination to escape pain, don't we? You get a headache, you take an aspirin, right? You, you, you get a cough, you take coughs. You, you, you always try to alleviate the pain. It's just a natural thing for us to do. But see, there's times that God just wants to submit to him in the pain. Stay there. Deal with it. Go through it. I'll be there for you. There's a Frenchman by the name of Paul Cladell, and I, I ran across this quote a few weeks ago. I wanted to leave this with you. He said this, Christ did not come to do away with suffering, and he didn't even come to explain it, but he came to fill it with his presence. And boy, I like that. Didn't come to do away with it, we're still going to suffer. He didn't even come to explain it. A lot of times you're going to go through things and you have no idea why. What he came to do was fill that trial, to fill that test with his very presence so that you and I can say like Hagar, truly here, the living one who sees me. Truly in this place is the living one that sees uh, me. Next week we'll turn to Genesis 17, that should say, and we'll look at the sovereignty of of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Genesis.